0: I want to tell you about the 1914 Newfoundland sealing disaster a tale of tragedy on the high seas or actually it wasn't really on the sea it was more on the ice so um, but a tragedy on the ice sounds like I don't know sounds like you're Favorite ice hockey team lost the final, so I don't know. Look, doesn't have the same ring to it. In any case, alert listener Daniel Buckley wrote in, uh, wrote in with this suggestion, and it's a bloody good one. We love a bit of naval history on the podcast, don't we? And also, now that I think about it, we also love a bit of freezing to death history. Apparently, there's episode two sixty one, episode one eighteen, e- even episode two. Um, been doing these uh, freezing to death episodes a very long time. It uh, turns out, anyway. Ceiling. Right. Uh, Going after seal. Sealing was a very big industry back in the early 20th century. Seal pelts were a very valuable trade commodity, so much so that sealers would venture first into and then onto the perilous ice flows in places like eastern Canada where a great many seals called home. Sealing was, of course, a very, very dangerous business and not just for the seals, Uh, Very dangerous for the seals, but also dangerous for the sealers themselves as well. But the wheels of commerce must keep turning. And so each springtime off the coasts of Newfoundland and Labrador, sealing vessels would set sail into icy waters, hoping to fill their holds with these valuable pelts. And one such vessel was the SS Newfoundland. In ni- In March 1914, uh, the ship Newfoundland set off uh, into the waters north of the province Newfoundland, or really, again, the ices, uh, because much of the sea was still frozen, and at least as far as the, the people aboard the Newfoundland uh, were hoping, uh, frozen and, and covered in seals as well. So, Navigating through these ice flows was a very difficult thing uh, for sealing vessels to do, and also very dangerous, as I say. Um, It didn't leave ships like the Newfoundland Mushroom to manoeuvre, and therefore it was very common for sealing vessels to find a likely-looking spot in the ice, stop altogether, and then send sealers trekking off across the ice itself to go and, and hunt the seals on foot. Now this of course only made things even more dangerous for the sealers themselves. Not only were they they lugging all the gear that they needed with them across the ice, um, they also had to then lug their takings back to the ship and this meant that they didn't really burden themselves with anything that wasn't deemed completely necessary. They didn't take things like food or portable shelter as they were leaving the ship. So They were, in a very real sense, at the mercy of the ice and the weather, especially if they had to walk some distance to reach the seals, because if snow set in or a blizzard kicked up, they'd then have to find their way back to their ship for safety. Now, there were things that... that Ships did to try to facilitate this. They would generally blow their their piercingly loud whistles to help sealers find uh, find their way in whiteout conditions. If a storm blew up, then the the ship would signal for the for the sealers to return by blowing the whistle. Uh, but still, it was a it was a tough thing to get back safely uh, in in conditions like that. So the long and the short of it is, I think I've sort of got this point across. Now, very very dangerous thing to be doing going off sealing. and as such, there was an there was often an understanding between the crews of different sealing vessels uh, that they would help each other out wherever possible, even if they worked for different and therefore uh, competing companies. And as it happened, the SS Newfoundland wasn't the only sealing st- uh, ship heading into the ice floes in March 1914. There was another ship, the SS Stefano, that was heading into the same area at the same time. and unbelievably, right? The captains of these two ships, the Newfoundland and the, uh, and the Stefano, they were related. The Newfoundland's captain, Westbury Keane, he was the son of the Stefano's captain, Abram Keane. So obviously it ran in the family, even if they were on, uh, well, on opposing teams, uh, so to speak. And despite working for different companies, as I say, the two of them had an understanding as they headed out to the ice. They understood that they would help each other. They would look out for each other, that they'd support each other's efforts while they were out there on the ice. Anyway. The Newfoundland, it's making its way through the ice When On the 30th of March, it spots a signal from the Stefano that a herd of seals had been found. Now, I say they spotted this. The Newfoundland didn't have a radio for reasons that we'll come to in due course. And so the ships, while they were uh, within uh, seeing distance of each other, uh, they couldn't communicate directly, but they could exchange visual signals. And this is exactly what the Stefano did. It signaled that it had come across a large uh, herd of seals, and uh, therefore invited the Newfoundland to come and, and partake in the hunt. So the, uh, the crew of the Newfoundland, very happy to have come across uh, a herd of seals or to have been alerted to the presence of a big herd of seals like this, but unable to get any closer to it due to the ice that separated them and the, and the Stefano. So as a result, right, the, the, the next day after this, uh, this herd, herd of, of seals have been spotted, uh, the next morning, bright and early, Westbury orders the, the sealers off his ship they're going to trudge all the way across the ice on foot and, uh, and get to their herd that way. And if they can't make it back by nightfall, he orders them to just stay on the Stefano and return the next day. Because, again, there's an understanding between these two captains that they'll help each other out. So uh, his dad, Abram, is, is going to look after his uh, his sealers and let, him, let, uh, let them stay on his ship. They leave at 7 o'clock in the morning and they walk for over... Four hours before finally reaching the Stefano, where they were warmed up with some tea by, uh, by uh, Abram, by Keene Senior, who pointed them in the direction of a herd to the south. Now, his men are off at a herd to the north, but he spotted another one, and he's, uh, he's good enough to point the, the men from the Newfoundland uh, in, in that direction. So the sealers from the Newfoundland, they, um, they head back onto the ice at around noon, and they begin to walk south as the Stefano then sailed off north to pick up its sealers where they were hunting. But by now, by the time these uh, these uh, Newfoundland sealers are trudging away off the ice again, along the ice, uh, snow had started to fall. And the clear conditions of the morning had given way to what seemed like a brewing storm. And before the sealers even arrived at the herd, they were exhausted. They were absolutely buggered. They'd been walking all day, right? And now the weather's only getting worse. And so... Before an hour even passes after they've left the Stefano, in view of their exhaustion, exhaustion of, in, in view of the worsening weather, the sealers decided, look, bugger this for a joke. We've had enough. We're going to head back to the Newfoundland. This is, this is not worth risking our lives for here, right? However, they were now in what was quickly becoming a full-scale snowstorm, and it was incredibly hard going for them. They are forcing them th- themselves through freezing knee-high snow and strong winds, and eventually darkness starts to fall without them ever clapping eyes on the Newfoundland, which is quite worrying. The, the sealers start to really listen out for the, the sound of the ship's whistle to, to help to guide them home. But the whistle is never blown, or at least they don't hear it. And so realising that they are going to have to probably spend the night on the ice, these sealers, they stop And they tried to fashion rudimentary shelter from the elements with bits of ice that were laying around, creating little windbreaks and what have you. But this was not very effective. And before long, frostbite began to set in on many of these poor blokes as the temperature plummeted as night fell. And... Sadly, some of the sealers didn't even make it through the night. They were dead before the sun rose, and many more were dead afterwards as they desperately tried to make their way back to where they thought the ship was. Conditions were terrible. There was poor visibility, there was freezing rain and snow and gusts of wind, but the Newfoundland Still wasn't blowing its whistle to help them find their way back. It should have been doing that the day before. It should, it should have been doing that as soon as the storm set in to help to guide them back to the ship. So what was going on? Why hadn't it? Why why had it had it not blown the whistle? Well, as these poor sealers froze in many cases to death, for some of them out on the ice on the night of the thirty first, Westbury Keen, the captain of the Newfoundland, he was rugged up safe and warm aboard his ship, he was certain that his men were also safe and warm aboard the Stefano because that's what he told them to do, spend the night on his father's ship if they weren't able to make it back. However, Abram Keane aboard the Stefano, right, he didn't realise just how far away the Newfoundland sealers were from their ship when he sent them off to this, this herd to the south He assumed that they all made it back to the Newfoundland safely. So while these poor sealers were stuck out on the ice, freezing to death, the captains of both ships thought that they were safely aboard the other's vessel. Now... Of course, this is the sort of question that could have been very speedily addressed with access to a radio. A quick check-in with the Stefano would have revealed that the Newfoundland sealers weren't there and that the Newfoundland better start blowing its bloody whistle to try to guide them home. But the Newfoundland, as I said, didn't have a radio. And there's a very good reason for this. I can tell you one that we will come to in due course, don't you worry. But all throughout the next day, the 1st of April, the Newfoundland sealers were desperately attempting to find their ship and and as they did so were dropping like flies in the cold due to hunger and exposure, snow and freezing rain, truly horrific conditions for these poor bastards. And it wasn't until the morning of the 2nd, after another night on the ice, that the Newfoundland finally came back into sight for them. Fortunately, another sealing ship arrived uh, around this area at around this time, the SS Bella Ventura, and between the two ships, a rescue mission was quickly launched when they realised the condition of these poor sealers. Men piled out onto the ice with food and blankets, dragging these poor sealers back to both ships to get warm and fed again. But of the 132 sealers that had been sent back onto the ice by Keene Senior on the afternoon of the 30th, only 55 made it to the 2nd of April, 77 men died on the ice, and some of their bodies were never even recovered. They'd fallen into the freezing water and were never seen again. And even afterwards, uh, as these sealers received treatment for for the horrors they'd suffered, uh, one more sealer died later in hospital, bringing the total death toll to 78. And even amongst those who survived, some never fully recovered, thanks to the frostbite and whatever else they'd suffered. And again, all of this could have been avoided if only the Newfoundland had had a radio. Quickly get in touch with his dad. Hey, mate, how are you? Yeah, good, mate. Oh, a bit, bit bloody cold, isn't it? Yep. Yeah, anyway, listen, my blokes, they're safe with you, aren't you? Oh, oh, what? Oh, they're not? Oh, OK. Better bloody toot on the old whistle so they can come back home then. But this wasn't an option. Westbury Kane couldn't radio his dad because, again, there was no radio on the Newfoundland. And, and by now, you are probably very keen to know why. Well, let me tell you. The lack of a radio aboard the Newfoundland was because the owners of the ship, the Newfoundland Sealing Company, had decided to specifically remove the ship's radio, believing it to be, this is not a joke, believing it to be an unprofitable piece of equipment. Having a radio set didn't cause the ship to make any more money, so therefore, they didn't need it. They ripped it out, only considering the financial aspects of this equipment and not the, you know, safety aspects. So these two captains slept soundly through the night, thinking the sealers were safely aboard the other's vessel, when in reality, they were freezing to death out on the ice floes. 77 men died on the nights of the 31st of March and the 1st of April, needlessly and tragically, all because the Newfoundland wasn't equipped with a radio. But, if you'll believe it, these poor men weren't the only ones to perish off the Newfoundland coast at that time. On those days... You might think it's called the 1914 Newfoundland sealing disaster after the ship, the Newfoundland, right? But no, it's not. It's named after the province. Because on the 31st of March 1914, there were not one but two concurrent maritime disasters both in Newfoundland and both involving sealing ships. The SS Southern Cross had also been out on the Newfoundland ice, and it's thought that they must have done very well for themselves indeed before they finally headed back towards shore at the end of March. On the 31st, the Southern Cross passed another ship, the SS Portia, which was headed for a nearby bay to weather a storm, the very same storm that those poor sealers were all about to bloody die in. The sailors aboard the Porsche noted that the Southern Cross was sitting low in the water, its hold presumably filled with seal skins, uh, hence the assumption that it had done very well for itself in the last hunt. But the people on the Porsche were also the very last to ever see the Southern Cross. It continued to sail off into the storm, and after that, it was never seen again. And even today, we don't know exactly what happened to the Southern Cross, By the 2nd of April, as the surviving Newfoundland sealers were finally being rescued, people began to notice that the Southern Cross was missing. Radio and telegraph messages were sent up and down the coast seeking for any news of a sighting of the vessel, but between the Porsche and the next place the Southern Cross should have been sighted at Cape Race, the ship had simply disappeared. Search parties were sent out aboard patrol steamers to find the ship, but they all came to nothing. The Southern Cross had vanished without a trace. The prevailing theory is that the storm must have tossed the ship around, and as it was so heavily laden down, this cargo may have become dislodged, causing the ship to become unbalanced and then ultimately capsize and sink. But whatever the cause, the Southern Cross was declared lost at sea with all hands. 173 sailors dying in the frigid waters making it an even bigger disaster in terms of numbers than what had happened with the Newfoundland. And it also brought the death toll off the Newfoundland coast between and across the 31st of March and 1st of April to 251. And at a time when only 250,000 people lived in Newfoundland, this loss was felt very, very keenly indeed. The next year, in 1915, the Canadian government held an inquiry into these tragic disasters and found that, surprisingly, the lack of safety regulations for sealing vessels was thoroughly inadequate. In 1916, legislation was passed that put limits on how much cargo sealers could bring back uh, with them, which would hopefully prevent another Southern Cross situation where heavy cargo would cause a ship to presumably capsize. Uh, This legislation also forbade sealers from being out on the ice in darkness. So no more tooting the whistle, mate. They had to be back on board the ship before darkness fell. And it also made shipping companies themselves responsible for any deaths and disasters that might take place incentivising these companies to make sure that safety procedures and practices were properly in place so people wouldn't needlessly lose their lives. But this legislation also did one final other thing that is uh, quite important. It mandated that sealing vessels were equipped by law with barometers and thermometers so they could properly assess the weather conditions that were outside before sealers were sent out onto the ice. And also mandated that sealing vessels had to be equipped with a radio, a measure that would doubtlessly save countless lives in the future and ensure a repeat of the Newfoundland disaster would never take place again. But hang on one second, you're saying, okay, sure, that, that's, that's great. It's, it's good that they're wanting to put radios on all the ships now. It's, obviously, the, the Newfoundland, it didn't have a radio due to those bloody cost-cutting bastards at the Newfoundland Sealing Company that owned it. But, but, but surely things were different on the Southern Cross. How was it that the Southern Cross managed to disappear without a trace? Why didn't it radio to the Porsche or to, or to Cape Race or to anyone anywhere if it was in distress? Well, exalted listener... If you'll believe it, this was because the Southern Cross also belonged to the Newfoundland Sealing Company and they had also removed the Southern Cross's radio to further cut down on costs.